The following program was produced by Community Producer. The content, views, and opinions expressed are the sole responsibility of the Community Producer and do not reflect Malden Access Television, the City of Malden, or your cable provider. MATV welcomes your comments. Call us at 781-321-6400 or email us at access at matv.org. Hello and welcome to Malden 02148. I'm your ghost, your host this evening, Ed Lucy, and I have as my guest Tim McCarthy, Executive Director of the Malden e- Mal- Middlesex Alcoholic Services. Eastern Middlesex Alcoholic Services. What did I say? Malden. You know. I fumbled it. That's all right. And I shouldn't have done that because I used to be on the board. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> as a matter of fact, now that I think back, uh, that was some. Some years ago, that shows you how long this organization has been in existence. And, and, and incidentally, as you're going to find out, if you haven't watched a program previously that Tim was on and not familiar with the the group itself, but they've been very successful. Uh, I can't recall where we first used to met, meet when I was on the board, and then eventually we met on um, Salem Street next to the next to the uh, the Jewish Temple, which no, I don't think it's even a temple any longer. But th- at the time. It was uh, it probably before Eastern Middlesex moved there. It was a, it was a, uh, it was a Baptist church or something? Oh, was it? Yes, yeah. and it was a church. Then you were there, and since then it's become condos. Oh, I wasn't there. I didn't. I didn't no, I didn't. but you know, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah, it's condos now. Yeah, no, it is. Condos. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, but this organization, uh, as I mentioned, has been established uh, for many years here in Malden, and um, works for the group within the population who probably. Uh, in some ways have great needs that aren't always uh, able to be fulfilled either because of what they lack or more important what sometimes the services they don't know are available and sometimes services that are beyond their reach. So maybe you can give a little background on, on uh, your years uh, or overview of what the model for your for okay. EMS is. Well, I'll go back a little bit in a little history here in, in the field is uh, the program that I run is is called <coughs> excuse me a residential uh, recovery home and they used to be called the old term was a halfway house and it really came out of uh, halfway houses came out of the corrections model uh, in the 50s and 60s and then and then also addiction came into it sort of the idea is it's halfway to becoming on your own and becoming successful and living by yourself uh, I believe I believe that that Eastern Middlesex got his license. It's like funded by the state. It's the main funder. In 1981, I believe that's that's the date that uh, that EMAS, as we call it, uh, got its license. And since since that time, it's been on Cedar Street. And you know we have that is is the main residential area. And there are three recovery homes too. That uh, yeah, I won't tell you the address because of confidentiality. 
But uh, Cedar Street is a very, uh, EMS is a very large residential program that has 30 beds uh, for addicted men and eight beds for graduates. We also have three graduate programs, we, we, or three graduate houses, that we began purchasing in 2000, 2012, 2015, 2017. Because we feel in our model, you mentioned the way that we do this, that our model is a little different than the transitional halfway house model. In uh, that particular model, which is a great model, is a place where you would go in the 80s and 90s and the teens, and, and you would go and you would be in the house for a couple of weeks, you get to know the rules, then you'd get a job, then you would stay there, you would stay sober, you would go to NA or AA meetings, you'd have some counseling there, you'd pay a treatment fee, rent, and hopefully stay sober for anywhere from three to six months. And at that, at that time, the idea was you were set and ready to go back to your life. And whether that's be with a relationship, a marriage, a job, et cetera. And that model is somewhat outmoded now uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of which is that the residents that we see, the clients or residents, whichever you want to call them, um, have, have more issues today than they did 30 years ago. And many of them need more than the three to six months. So in EMAS, what we decided to do starting in 2012 is to purchase houses, graduate houses, so that if a, that if a resident completes the six-month program, three to six-month program, and then I make a decision that it's appropriate for him to go on to one of our graduate houses, then he could spend six months in one. Actually, let me go back a little. We have the eight graduate beds go upstairs and spend six months upstairs, can spend six months in one of the houses, and can spend actually two to three years in what we call a continuum. And that would be connected to us. That would be still having some therapy that they would have to do, uh, a, a, a treatment program, uh, AA and NA meetings. So it's not like going to just a sober house where you can basically uh, do whatever you want, or there might be some rules. In this place, we consider it a, an ongoing treatment program. And uh, we find that that model has been pretty successful. Uh, our graduate rate is high. And uh, in, in fact, that a couple of years ago, we started having a retreat. And, and that's for all the graduates. And the retreat, it was 2018 was the first one. We had 16 graduates up Waterville Valley. And then in 2019, we had 44. And then last year, I expected to have 60 grads. Except uh, for? I, huh? Except for the virus? Except for the virus. <laughs> and COVID changed that. But this year, we're really working on getting, it used to be around Memorial Day, but now we're working on getting one going in, in Labor Day. And I expect to get anywhere around 50 residents. And then hopefully if COVID or whatever variant stays away, We'll do this in another year. The whole idea with EMAS is to, is to keep the graduates connected to the house for the long haul. Because what we know is, again, these men need more than three to six months. They need an environment. Some of them need more than others. Uh, and if they, if they complete the program and they stay in there, we, again, we have a high success rate and a life connection with, uh, with the graduates. So we're very pleased with the model and how we do it.
The um, you you mentioned now um, um, some of the information that uh, is very impressive when you say the success rate. Uh, have you found that in the last uh, year or so, where <coughs> the, the virus came along, it, it made even your situation more complicated, more difficult because of the restrictions, and also because sometimes people uh, are isolated, and we hear stories about whether they're adults or children, they're having problems adjusting right. to. Sure. Because of the isolation? Oh, yeah. COVID changed everything for us. We are under the category, according to the funding in the state, of congregate care, which would be any kind of group home or a nursing home or a, uh, a home in which, which uh, um, a large amount of individuals would reside with each other, so they're in, in constant contact. When COVID came out, is a DPH, uh, which is the parent organization, Department of Public Health, and then BSAS, Bureau of Substance Abuse, which is the organization that I report to, sent out some directives that were very helpful to us uh, about how to handle this and how to continue providing substance abuse services while protecting our men and my staff from getting infected with COVID. Uh, it, it really took a lot, and again, I'll take the opportunity right now, if my staff's kind of watch this, is that my staff's fantastic, that they stayed with me. Uh, we did not work from home. We don't have that kind of uh, uh, an opportunity to do that. We're essential workers in which we had to be there. Is uh, I would give them some time away when, when the COVID was really, was really high and intense uh, in the state. But for the most part, we were there every day. And we were working with the men. We were wearing masks. And, and the men were wearing masks, and we were taking temperatures every day. We were testing them. We were getting ourselves tested. It was pretty rigorous during that time, and it was very stressful. Uh, but I'll tell you, my staff stayed with me, and they rode with me uh, during this whole time, and uh, we wouldn't have been able to come out of this as well as we did if, if I didn't have them. They're fantastic. Did you, did you find out that the, uh, the number of, People came to see you for support increased because of that? Oh, no, it went down. It went down. It went down. It went down in all the congregate care houses. Is, uh, well, a couple of reasons is you know, I have to think back now because we started wearing masks and, and started dealing with this thing in March of 2020. So what do we got, 15, 16 months into yes. this thing? And then it got really bad, bad in the spring, and then it went down in the summer, and then it got really bad in the winter. So there was a couple of times... In which, in which there were spikes. Uh, the, the combination of COVID and people not wanting to go into treatment and also the money that the government put out there for unemployment at that particular time were two reasons why, uh, I, won't th I won't say I think, I know, uh, that kept uh, the individuals who would normally have been referred to my program and other programs in the state, kept them out there using. And we all understand, all of us that run these programs, understand that, that, um, that government and, and, and individuals are very compassionate and kind and want to provide, you know, rents and mortgages and, and the stimulus payments to all Americans going through a very difficult time. But our individuals, uh, it didn't. It hurt more than help. 
I, I'll say that for myself, yeah. but I think. And it kept, it kept the alcoholics and addicts who would normally go into treatment, it kept them out there longer because the money kept coming in. And so we've been, we've been battling with that as far as populating our programs. It's getting better now. Uh, I have a census. Uh, I can take 30 residents in at one time. I went down to 15. Now I have 23 men that are in the program. Uh, but I can tell you the government and, and the federal government and the state has been very helpful of providing us money through the PPP loans that I could pay my staff. So I did not have to lay anybody off that my staff stayed with me. I was able to compress their hours. And uh, when we were going through the real difficult time to protect their health and their safety, and we continued to deliver. I think we delivered um, excellent uh, substance abuse services to the residents that were in the program. You, you'd mentioned uh, are a lot of the people uh, that you deal with double addicted, both uh, alcoholic and drugs? Yeah, the term used to be called tool diagnosis. And today it's called co-occurring disorders, but I think most people still call it dual diagnosis. Uh, again, going back into the history, in the 80s and, and around that time, it, 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 there might have been, uh, obviously there were people that had depression, had some psychiatric issues. But we feel today, and I don't have any evidence of this, but I think in the, in the field that we feel that the, uh, the factors, uh, uh, the underlying factors in, uh, of depression uh, in trauma, PTSD, are much higher today than they were 30 years ago. So our men um, get delivered mental health services too. Going back to my staff, I'm fortunate that, uh, that I have two counselors who have master's degrees who got them while they were in the program, supported by EMAS, that we helped them with, uh, with, uh, with the tuition. And that was because my bosses, my board of directors, wanted me to do that. They took advantage of that. I have two other counselors, one who's about to enter a master's program and another, another uh, counselor who's about to do that, I think, by the end of this year. So when you have that kind of skilled counselors, therapists, who are working for you and working with the men, they were able to get tremendous services. Besides the regular substance abuse services, they were getting a lot of mental health services. There were some individuals, Ed, that... that you know, may have some trauma issues that we can't handle, then we would refer that individual out to a, uh, a clinic around here or to a place in town where they would deal with that. But most of the uh, dual diagnosis, what we would call an axis one, another axis one would be substance abuse, and then there would be depression, et cetera. We can handle ourselves. The, um, the typical kind, and I realize that there's such a cross-section of people that, are, that come in, in, under your radar but uh, do they tend to be young in, in yeah. this day and age rather than uh, older or people have been maybe up and down over the years? Yeah. Um, also, as I describe it to some people, ask me you know, what's changed in the past 30 years or so, because I've been doing this work for about 35 years, is in uh, recovery homes uh, back down in the 70s and 80s, the average individual was, it was all alcohol, maybe did a, a couple of lines of cocaine, that uh, they were pretty low bottom uh, in a lot of cases and uh, had been kicked out of their house, uh, they had broken marriages, uh, et cetera. And, 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 uh, um, they, they, if they got sober and didn't have any, any trauma issues from their childhood, which they, they tended to be less of, were able to do the, 
the six months, three to six months, and then go out and, re and, and resume, you know, either repair their marriage uh, in the relationship. And as I mentioned, they were in their 40s. I think the average age is 45 or so. Today is, I think it's 28. I think the average age is 28, and the drug is opiates. It's opiates. It used to be heroin cut with some other stuff, but today it's fentanyl. So there really isn't any heroin out there. It's all fentanyl. And where there, there used to be some overdoses with heroin um, and, and deaths with it is nothing compared to what happens with fentanyl today. That's where all the overdoses and the deaths are coming with. There's a lot of other drugs they're using, too. Uh, very rarely is an individual just using one drug. They're polysubstance dependent. Um, and they tend to have, as I mentioned before, a trauma history that's much more significant than the clients did back in the 80s. Therefore, what they need is they need more services. The, you mentioned uh, you also have a residence away from your main office in Cedar Street. Yeah. Um, I, I think back sometimes over the years when there'd be a, 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 in some particular neighborhood, whether it was zoning changes or <laughs> licensing uh, requests for, for residents of different kinds, yeah. group homes separate yeah. from anything that you're dealing with, and it was always the attitude, not always, but certainly a lot of times it was uh, not in my neighborhood. So, yeah. uh, did you have much resistance from the... From uh, the yeah, it was an interesting because uh, Greg Lucy was the president of my board, who you know very well. <laughs> and, and, I went, and I went around and, and started purchasing these houses, again, starting in 2012. I'm not from Malden, uh, but of course he is, and, and you were the former mayor. So he knows all the neighborhoods. By the way, for those that may not know, it, I mean, that's my son he's referring to. <laughs> yeah. And I used to be on the board many years yeah. before Tim. And also Sean. And my, my son Sean was also on the board after yeah. me. Yeah. So uh, in 2012, when we decided uh, that we would start looking for other places in Malden, because we wanted it within the city limits, is I would go with Greg and we would drive around. And we had a, a, a great real estate agent, Michelle Long. And she would bring us to houses that were available. And Greg would say to me, can't do it there. Can't do it there. Can't do it there. And what it was, because he would point out, he knew everybody. He would say it's because it is, it, there's a politician, there's a counselor, there's this. Listen, folks, does, uh, I mean, who wants a halfway house next door, right? Uh, let's be honest. If somebody comes to you and say next door you want a halfway house built. I, I think most of us who live in residential areas would probably say no. Uh, in this case, there were sober houses, and which is a lot different than that. But still, you're dealing with 8 to 10 recovering men. And what Malden had at that point in time was a, his, a terrible history with sober houses. It, it, when sober houses started coming out, there was a lot of money in it. And that's that's because uh, I wasn't the only one recognizing the fact that, that the men needed more than three to six months is they needed a lot more than that. So a lot of guys with a lot of good intentions would buy houses and, and they, would, uh, you know, they would open them up to men and they would pay rent and there were some strict rules you couldn't use, et cetera. Uh, but actually they became, and I want to say this the right way, there was a tremendous need for them and they did great work. And there's some fantastic ones out there still that have rules in which they, they, they drug screen the, the people in the house, the residents in the house, and, and they, they make sure that they have some counseling, et cetera. But a lot of them became money makers. 
And, and you could make a lot of money, and a lot of guys did make money in that. So Malden had some bad experiences with sober houses. And in fact, they closed a lot of them down. So when Greg and I started going around after that and saying, well, this isn't really a for-profit because Eastern Middlesex is a not-for-profit recovery home. So, so uh, all every, anything connected to us, which would include the three sober houses that we have, that's not for profit either. Everything has to go back into the into the agency to expand and to, and to serve clientele. So we would sell that and try to sell that to the neighbors. And and uh, uh, I think Greg did that more than I did. He made a lot of calls. Uh, we we found one. We found one in 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 2012, and it actually had been a sober house before, but they had a lot of problems with the neighbors. I think that the, the city may have closed it down at one point, but it, they weren't really happy with it. But we would look for a house that had to have a lot of bedrooms, you know, because you're talking about you have to have eight to ten guys, you know. You know. Anyway, and we always have to do construction and put bathrooms in, and that because you're dealing with a lot of men. So we purchased one, and at that time, the real estate prices are not what they are <laughs> in Malden today. Believe me yet. You should you know? flip it then. <laughs> I flip it. And, and we, we got a good deal on this thing because a lot of work needed to be done with it. And so, so Greg and I in the board, and we purchased it then. Um, and then 2015, because we filled that up, and we started looking for another one. In 2015, again, that was before the prices in Malden went way up. We found another one that needed some work, and we bought that one. And then the third one, because we filled that up, and the third one that we that we purchased in 2017 was a house that had already been redone. And uh, we decided at that point in time that things were going to go up, and this was probably a good deal. And so Greg and I, you know, took a uh, took a risk in that, and the board took a risk in that. And we purchased that, and of course. Uh, as I tell your son, I said, you know, Greg, we should go into the to the real estate business here because the purchases that the board made, East Middlesex made, have turned out to be wonderful purchases because all the homes are great for our guys. They're perfect. Uh, the, 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 they're in areas, I think going back to what you say is, there are areas that are, you know, one of them's in a, in a cul-de-sac, and, and the neighbors love us there. Uh, another one is right on, uh, you know, Salem Street, I can say the main that. Street. Yeah, so, but it's, it's so busy there that nobody knows what the neighbors are doing. I do. You do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah. And another one is further down off of Salem Street, and, it, and it's, so it's somewhat isolated. So we were very, knock on wood, lucky to get these, these three homes. But my, my men who are in these houses know that they cannot create any problems in the neighborhood and that they are to reach out and develop good relationship with the neighbors. And so the first one that we have, the neighbors love us. The guys go out and shovel everybody out. They take care of their trash cans. Uh, we take care of any problems that we've had. We've never had a police. We've never had the Malden police come out to any of these houses since 2012. And that first one you referred to, you've done a lot better job with the, with the property than the former sober house. Yeah. Uh, yes, there were. There were. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I, uh, you know, he gave us a good deal, and so I can't say anything bad about him. Uh, but but we ended up. It, it just it just came together. You know, I got to think that it just 
it, it was meant to be. And at that time, you know, those of us in, they used to call them three-quarter way houses, you know, to be close to the, to the recovery home next to you. But uh, they weren't like treatment programs. This was more of a treatment program. And, uh, yeah, and, and, and so we did it the right way, but we were very conscious of the neighbors because if, if they don't welcome you in and if you're got not good with them, Ed, then you're the first person they point to. When some, when some you know, guy comes walking down the street going nuts like they do today, yeah, you'd be the first person. It's somebody from that house. And, and that's never happened, and I'm very proud of that. Yeah. I, I have some experiences with other uh, in, uh, situations in, in halfway houses or sober houses. And as you alluded to a little bit earlier, um, the people that own them, as well-intended as they may have been, the, the bottom line was important to them in terms of the, of the ability to make some money while they're doing a public good. And um, I recall one situation, wasn't even in Malden, by the way, where um, it, it went along fairly well, except at times if they ended up uh, having a problem with, a, with one of their clients, but there was an empty bed resulting from a situation, the rules were always enforced. And once there's a breakdown in that, that structure or environment, sometimes one, one exception leads to two, and then you've... Then you've ended up telling two different people, and, that's, and the third roommate decides, well, if they did it, I can do it. And, and all, all of a sudden, uh, even if they're not all there at the same time, a precedent's been set, and it doesn't function in, in terms of the way it's supposed to. And that's really sometimes where the problems come up, not only with the law, but with the neighbors, and, and sometimes in, in the failures that occur there. Yeah, I, if, I think in running the, these programs, no matter what, what type of model that it is, if you don't establish a culture in, in which there is, is, they have to know what the rules are, and you have to be fair in enforcing the rules. And once you do that, most of the time the guys like it. They end up liking it there for a while because they feel safe and they trust that you're really taking care of them. Uh, my issue with my, my one of my mandates is to make sure that I'm consistent, and in my program director, Phil Lydiard, who's fantastic, and I couldn't do it without him, uh, that we uh, deliver consequences if they're necessary in a fair way. Uh, you know, we never get angry at these guys. Sometimes in, in all the programs Sometimes they're that bigger we have, than you. Well, they're all bigger than me, Ed. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but uh, you know, that doesn't bother me. Uh, I grew up in a pretty tough area, so. Um, what are you from Charlestown? Um, yeah, I'm a project kid from Salty. That's all I'll <laughs> you know, say. That's close. So, yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, it, it, I, it, and I treat the men with respect, and and that's all they really want is they want respect. And when they push back at me, uh, it, you know that I'm just real consistent. And the good see the thing about it is if you make a house or these houses a place where men want to be rather than some other place or in the street, after they get through with the authority problems, which is, every, which is the main thing with men. These guys all have authority problems, which means they have a problem with me and they have a problem with my program director, Phil Lydiard. Once they work out their authority problems, is usually it, it's pretty good. And that, take, that takes the first month. And guy, there are some guys who are so damaged uh, and suffering from their childhood that they, they just can't, they can't change that. And unfortunately, uh, EMAS is not an appropriate program for them because we're just too structured for that. The, um, 
the ages you said a twenty eight now average, average age, huh? yeah, yeah, and and um, obviously you have some even younger, and because there are younger yeah. people who sure. start doing drugs at, in their teens, and by the time they're early, Nin- we, 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 we nineteen, I think is is the span that we have. Yeah, nineteen yeah. up to you know we've had people in their sixties. Yeah. Uh, are most of your clients referred to you from another source? Yeah. Uh, I, I, it, people get a little confused with this and how it, how it really works. It, the best way to do that, well, first let me say that we have accepted individuals on occasion uh, from certain places without going through the system, systematic way that I'm going to explain. But that's rare, and it often doesn't work out well, and this is the reason why, is they should be medically cleared. You know, and, and in order to be medically cleared, the best thing to do is to go to a detox, state-run detox or some detox or hospital somewhere, and get medically cleared, and then get sent to something called a CSS, which is a very short-term program anywhere from, from two weeks to a month. That's where they'll come in. They've been, they, they've been for the most part, detoxed but they still have a ways to go depending upon the drug that they're, they're taking. And there's, there's doctors, there's nurses there, there are medical individuals there, there's counseling there. And then from there, um, the way that it goes is transitional programs. They're called TSS programs, holding, we used to say in the old days. And you would go from that program to a holding program. We've had people wait you know, a couple of months or so or more in order to get our program because they want the structure. Right now, and what's happened since COVID, is that that weight's been been changed and that uh, detox would go to a CSS, and sometimes we'll take people from there, especially if we know them, and they would go to to, to a holding facility for a couple weeks. And I, I think the longest that anybody would wait in order to come into my program would be about six weeks. Uh, It's usually uh, a shorter period of time than that. But that's six weeks. You're being evaluated uh, medically. They're uh, arranging insurances, which becomes, you know, they're on the mass health. So it's much easier for them to do it than it is when they get to to my area. And so they have the, the medical, the insurance, and they've made the appointments necessary, like to see physicians and doctors and and specialists. So when they come in, uh, they already have everything lined up, and we can take it from there. You mentioned insurance. Now, uh, are some of your clients uh, uh, pri- private pay, or not necessarily private pay, but they have conventional insurance as opposed to mass health or something yeah. similar to that? Well, see, the way it's set up, and uh, we talked about uh, a place before we, we were on air, in, on air there's, there's a lot more for-profit uh, thir- like 30 days or 60 day programs in Massachusetts than it used to be. Some of them have contracts with the state, and that would be ma- Mass Health. Uh, but a lot of them it would take commercial insurances, and that's Blue Cross, Tufts, et cetera. Uh, we're not set up for that. How we get funded is that, that I have a contract with the Bureau of Substance Abuse, DPH, and for a number of bed days per year at a certain rate. That's how we get most of our money to pay for the heat, the lights, the water, the food, everything that we do in, in running, running the main 30-bed residential program. Uh, it, it, trying to get commercial insurances to pay, again, a, you know, Blue Cross, Tufts, 
uh, Harvard Pilgrim is very, very difficult. Uh, we just don't have a mechanism for that. So uh, sometimes we cannot take people because of that. Uh, I don't like to turn people away. Sometimes we can work with them on that, maybe getting into, into mass health. Uh, sometimes there's a few days of free care. And in fact, I would, in, in more than that, uh, that, that my program does uh, thousands of dollars of free care you know, every year because I, for a guy would be in between insurances. And sometimes what happens that is, is the insurances will cut somebody off. We're not aware of it for a week. And then we get them on insurance, and that whole week is not reimbursed. I mean, obviously, they're going to continue on our program, but we have to keep our eye on that. So it, the, the funding, the insurances that, that the referrals have is important because that's, again, how we get our, our, uh, our money in order to run everything. Now, some people, uh, when they come in, they, yeah. they may have be on disability or some other, so they might have a, yeah. an, an income stream yeah. from another source other than the Mass Health or uh, yeah. SSI or whatever. Unemployment. Unemployment. Well, I guess, although um, uh, that's a good, that, uh, the, um, by definition, with unemployment, I think it's supposed to be available for employment, but if you're, if you're in a program, you're not. In, but anyway, yeah. the, the revenue stream, does that help? Uh, Cover the cost of their stay if it ends up that they're accepted uh, into your program. You know, traditionally, and going back is that that some of the programs in the '80s would take one third of what you made. So whatever income that you had, whether it's through disability, through this, that, or the monies that you veterans made, veterans disability. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if if you if you you get a good job and you're making sixty seventy thousand dollars a year, they take a third of that. Yeah. Uh, a lot of us we, would uh, just have a treatment free fee that's set, but we have a sliding scale fee. And occasionally one of my guys, it doesn't happen that often, is able to land a job uh, or continue on with a job that makes good money, in which case we'll charge him a treatment fee that's a little higher and that, that's more fair. But most of the guys that come in there really don't have that and they can't work for a month anyway. So they get the get well jobs that we're all familiar with. So they don't have a, they don't have a lot of money, and they shouldn't have a lot of money. They should have just enough uh, in order to pay their their treatment fee, their family responsibilities, child care, and we make allowances for that too. Um, because one money in the pocket is a huge trigger with our guys. So we do take people in disability. It's not it's not common. Uh, because all these programs are, quote, rehabilitation programs, which they're working houses. So, you know, that, that sort of goes against the idea of a working house. So what you would want to do is if you do take somebody who's got a serious, you know, disability and can't work and doesn't want to give up this disability, you'd want them to volunteer. You'd want them to do something in order to do the rehabilitation part of what they do. You just don't want them hanging around the house all day long. Uh, that's not what EMAS and most of the other working houses are built for. Yeah. Now, you mentioned AA yeah. uh, earlier. Now, um, is, is that separate from your program, or is that part of your program with, with the members? Oh, no. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous and all the other fellowships are separate. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, we provide the treatment, you know, acute care, and, and uh, you know, that with detoxes or whatever, then residential care for a short period of time. But, but if you're talking about, about years and decades, where guys get their recovery from, 
is some connection with us, but basically it's the foundation of Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. So all of our men have a treatment plan, and that treatment plan includes the um, counseling with, with the very skilled counselors and therapists that I have, but also belonging to a 12-step program. I also I, I, am not opposed for any religious affiliation. If, if, if one of my guys is, is could get some spirituality from a church, a mosque, or a temple, uh, in my mind, that's as good as, as going to one of these meetings. But uh, for the most part, guys are going to some kind of spiritual or support group therapy on a daily basis. Yeah. The, now, the, um, the AA meetings, are they both daytime meetings or night meetings? And what are the, how do they, if, if it's off-premise, do you provide transportation for men to go to the meetings? I mean, how does that work? No, we, we, we have, we have a, a, a van that, that is – some of the houses do. Some of the houses have had this tradition in which they'll, they're not as big as us, and they'll have like, 16, 18 people, and they'll put them in a, in a van, and they'll, staff will drive them to specific meetings, and they kind of control that. Uh, I think most of us don't do that. We like to make it their responsibility. I mean, one of the great things about being where we are is we're a quarter of a mile away from Malvern Tea Station so that everything is available from there. And we want our guys to go to local meetings around here. Uh, and the meetings around here are primarily Narcotics Anonymous meetings. Uh, if you would go up the street to Melrose, is they're primarily Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. But, you know, at some point in time, and, and the old time as an AA would probably, you know, clench with if I say this, they'd probably be just Addictions Anonymous, uh, in, in, in which most, most individuals are, are polysubstance dependent. Uh, although there, there are definite cultural differences in, in the two fellowships, uh, we recommend our men uh, take advantage of both of them if they can. Uh, but again, around here, it, it's primarily Narcotics Anonymous. Um, I, you, you had mentioned earlier about these these homes that you have, which are in neighborhoods that normally consider residential areas, <laughs> and that your success um, has been very positive, not only in terms of the, the the behavior of the people that that are temporarily living with your with with your residents, but they're, they're reaching out to the neighbors and helping the neighbors, and, and uh, so in effect, is a is a dual benefit in addition yeah. to helping them in some respects. The neighbors are having a situation where they normally wouldn't have as much attention from Absolutely. their close yeah. neighbors. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, one of my backgrounds is be, uh, behavioral. I used to work in a place called Boys Town in which I got trained uh, on behavioral therapy. And, uh, Did you say Boys Town? Boys Town. Father yeah. Flanagan's Boys oh, Home. Oh, he's not heavy father. He's my brother? Yeah. Yeah. It, it was the biggest uh, adolescent or one of the biggest Nebraska, adolescent programs. Yeah. I was there from 80 to 84. And I got a lot of training in, in, in behaviorism, and what they talked about was a lot about teaching and, and learning. And, and, you know, a lot of our guys don't have the skills. A lot of our guys don't grow up like maybe you did or I did, in which we were taught what to do. Uh, and it was real clear to us that what you do is you help the people. You, you know, if somebody's got trash barrels, you pick them up and you put them there. Uh, it's different today, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying it's different today. So a lot of the, the, the men that I have have been living in such a way that, that they have to be taught. They have to, uh, to be shown the way, and that has to be reinforced. So 
when we send them, or Phil, my program director, uh, uh, makes a decision for them to go to one of the three houses from upstairs, is, is they are, they know that they're responsible for their behavior, they're representing Eastern Middlesex, and, and taking care of the neighbors, at least in one particular house, is very, very important. But in all the houses, relationship with the neighbors is paramount. We take that very seriously, and anybody who breaks that rule is asked to leave. Well, I, um, I know one of the homes I, I go <laughs> by uh, for, for in my daily routine, and uh, I must say, unless you were told ahead of time, you would never be aware that there was anything other than what used to be there. And, and if people sometimes were aware of what was there before, it was totally different <laughs> from what's there now. But the end yeah. result is that it's, it's uh, the people in the homes, yeah. uh, at that particular home, I'm sure it's true with the others, that they, they, they follow the rules, and if they don't, they don't stay. So They don't. You have to be very consistent with that. You have to establish a culture. I mean, it's an outgrowth of the main house that we have uh, in, you know, on Cedar Street is that all of them have gone through that program, so they, they understand what's expected of them. And they have a lot of pride in their houses. You know, once they're there and they're there for a while, they don't, want, they don't want trouble. They finally got to a place in their life where they're getting sober and they're feeling good about themselves and they're repairing some of their problems. And the last thing they want to do is to have somebody in the house who's using, creating a problem, creating a problem with the neighbors. So they kind of take care of that themselves. Uh, if not, then then a Philly Diod or I will intervene with that and make sure that the problem is removed. Yeah. The, uh, do you have occasions where someone has graduated from the program? And now, you had mentioned earlier what, what used to be thought of as a, uh, the detox was maybe seven days, uh, yeah. ten days, uh, yeah. and then you'd go into a program and in, in, in a relatively short time they'd yeah. say, okay, you're on your own. Yeah. It, it isn't that way at all in your program. This is a a drawn-out program that's reinforced as they go along. But do you have sometimes after someone has been in the program, gone through all the things that are necessary, graduated, as it yeah. were, and then is out in the world, and then he comes back and maybe talks to some of the people that are currently in oh, there sure. and tell them how uh, sure. there's, a, there's a chance to change their life if only they can Absolutely. Yeah. That when, when we had a, a meeting at, at, uh, on Cedar Street uh, last week, had 45 to 50 grads and bringing them back for, for the retreat. And they talk to the guys, they sponsor the guys, they take them out to meetings. COVID really put, you know, uh, interrupted that process, but that's a big part. That connection is a, is a huge part of what we do. It's very important. Mm -hmm. you, you, uh, you, your reference has been in, in, in our uh, show today about men. There were no women in your program? No. No. I, I believe there's only one co-ed recovery home in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and it works fantastic. It's a great home. It works great for some individuals, and for other individuals, I don't know about that. But there must be programs just for women? Oh, sure. Yeah. Not as many, though. One of the things in, in, in our field, in the field of, of addiction treatment, Ed, that all of us want is more services for women. Uh, it's harder for a woman to get sober than it is for a man because of the, the connection with the relationships, the primary relationships with the men in their life but also children. And so th there aren't that many programs in which a, uh, a mother, especially with a baby or a, a young child, can go and be safe uh, and, and get the treatment for substance abuse that she needs. Uh, there just aren't that many. There are many more uh, straight 
residential programs are men and there are for women. The the um, the other thing I do think is, if I remember correctly, there's a there's a women's prison in Framingham. Yes, there is. And um, I think in it's been offered up that a lot of the women who end up there, part of the reason they may have gone off the reservation legally or whatever, is that they have some drug issues. Oh, and, sure. and they get there, and now they're in Framingham. Just as a, some, do they have a, a program while they're in prison? Yeah, they do. They do. They have a good program up in Framingham. Uh, I taught for, for many years in UMass and some other colleges, <coughs> excuse me, in the addictions programs. And I had a former student who worked up there and developed the program. That's really well. The prisons do. The prisons and the corrections really do a good job of providing some substance abuse services. And then we, we and I'll take guys on parole and probation uh, all the time. I have a bunch of guys on probation and parole now. Yeah, well, I was going to say that. I, uh, to, to digress a moment or two, uh, years ago I did a, a, I was part of a tour that went to Walpole Prison. Yeah. And I remember doing a, they had a, a round robin discussion after we did the tour. And uh, in those days, they had the uh, the denim shirts with the cigarettes. They don't have that anymore. That's how long ago. But it, but the thing was that, they, that the, the, the professional people that were talking to us at that time indicated years before that, the the um, profile of the typical resident of Walpole because that was the hard that was the long term facility for yeah. a lot of the people. Yeah. Cedar Junction, now. Yeah. yeah, and and what? But the point was that there were young, younger, much younger people that were now prisoners there, and where the ones that had prior been prisoners there and, and been incarcerated kind of knew the routine a little bit, and what they did is they did their time and they got out, but but now you had a lot of young people come in on long-term sentences, some instances, and they had a, a lot of energy and no place to put it, and so there was more there were more problems in the prison at that point because the they were y- much younger than they had been prior to it, and the other factor was that they not only were in there because of they were committed crimes, but they oftentimes had drug issues or they had alcohol issues separate from the the profile of the former inmates that had been there a year before. So you, you have that situation. Oh, sure. Uh, is, is that a lot? I, I don't know what percentage would be, but at any given time, <clears throat> we have a percentage of the guys who have been incarcerated. And you know, I think most of us who do this kind of work believe in the medication model, and that is, is that uh, men and women use drugs and alcohol in order to medicate trauma issues, depression, there's a lot of that, I would think. Oh, yeah. We yeah. think that's the primary reason for that. And uh, mo- most, most of the guys have drug offenses. And, they, and if they go to jail, it's because they have multiple drug offenses. Uh, and they're not violent individuals, although they might have been involved with a scuffle and you know somebody laid on an assault charge in them. But if you really look at it, it's really not that. Uh, occasionally, somebody, <coughs> excuse me, is, is a more serious offense, but that that's not really the case. So those individuals get referred to us uh, from drug court. Drug courts are fantastic. We work with three or four drug courts in in Massachusetts. It's an alternative to be incarcerated for for drug offenses. You know, if somebody's sober, they don't commit the offenses. It's when they pick up that they do that. So the diversionary programs, and we work with them, and they're really highly successful. They, they support us. Um, when I say somebody's done with, you know, with 
with a program, they've gotten as much as they can out of it. For the most part, they support me in that. Um, yeah, and, and, and as far as we going back to what you were saying is we, we live in different times. That, you know, they, they, I think it's much harder to grow up today than it was in your day, you know, my day. <laughs> it's just much harder. There's just a lot of, you know, we could go on forever in sociological uh, analysis of the reason why there's so many problems here. But uh, my guys uh, have a, a lot of things they need to overcome, substance abuse being the primary one. But they have criminal records, some of them do. They have felony convictions, whatever that might be. And trying to get a job with a felony conviction in this state or in most states is very hard to do. So their employment is, is uh, limited. And so there are some really good uh, places that will work with us on that, you know, like Home Depot and some of the other places that will hire our guys and, and take guys in who have a quarry, you know, a criminal record. And there are some places who really don't want to take them. But overall, they've been able to get decent jobs. And then after a period of time, they can go to court and get sealed if they've been sober for a while and, and haven't reoffended. Hmm. Um, just from curiosity's sake, we were talking about the past 15 or 16 months when you had to make a whole yeah. revamping of the way you did business, the way you dealt with people. Did you have much of an issue with people getting infected? The, the residents? Yeah, it, it's, uh, uh, we, we had one individual tested positive for COVID. That's all? That's all. And that's what everybody says. That's all. And it, it happened, I can remember, it, it, it happened the day after I had a board of directors meeting in which I was saying, we're very lucky to get through this. And, mm. and we, were, we were very stringent. A lot of it is just being fortunate. But we're very stringent. Uh, you know, I was it's so sick of hearing me say, put the mask on. I'd open the door in the morning, come in, masks! And, you know, <laughs> drove them nuts. And, and we, we took temperatures every day. But I think all the programs did that. All the and programs obviously they were that. tested if they were, were uh, going to come into the program. They had to be tested. They were tested. And while they're in there, tested all the time. We were yeah. testing them on a regular basis. And the state, finally, finally, we would go out for testing. And the staff, too, had to be tested as well. Um, it, it eventually they sent us a self-testing kits. I think we've had them for a bunch of months in which we can just test everybody, including the staff, and send it. And two days later, I get a report saying, you know, who's positive and who's negative. But we've been very, very fortunate. Gee, that's an amazing record. Yeah. Because the cross-section of people you're dealing with. Yeah. Uh, now, um, do you require uh, people, if they come in the program, that they have to be vaccinated? No. You don't, you no, don't, that's not, not we right. don't do that. Is that cannot be a barrier on coming in? Interesting. Yeah. Uh, what what we do tell them is that they're coming into a house in which the overwhelming majority of the men who are in the house and all the staff are vaccinated. So uh, th that's that's a choice that they have in coming in. Uh, but we were just we were just told uh, a, a couple of weeks ago that if you're fully vaccinated, that you don't have to wear a mask. So one of the benefits of being fully vaccinated is that you don't have to wear a, ma sure. a mask in the congregative care. Whereas if you're not, if you're not vaccinated, you will have to as long as you're there, you have to wear a mask. Um, even though you have multiple uh, bedrooms. Yeah, it's kind of close quarters when you add up the staff there. Right. In this, 
social distancing, did that be, was that an issue part of the reason, time we've talked about this last year ago, March? Yeah, yeah. Social distancing is, we had a meter upstairs, downstairs. We had signs all over the place. My staff was great with that. I have a lot of, a, a lot of individuals that work, we call them desk men, who are really the backbone. They're in for security and implement a lot of the stuff that, that Phil Lydia wants them to do. And they were great on making sure the guys were separated and, and uh, uh, as much as possible. Now, once they go upstairs into the residential area, you know, and they, my guy, my, my desk man would go up and check on them on a regular basis to make sure everything was okay. Is I'm not saying that all the time they were wearing a mask on that. Uh, and and I, w I want to correct one of my situations. We did have times in which I had to quarantine people in the house who were sent home for work because they were in contact with somebody at work that had COVID. And at that particular time, I'm talking months ago, you had to make sure they're quarantined for two weeks or 10 days, two weeks, whatever it was. So we had a basement downstairs that has its dedicated bathroom. And in that basement, they would be down there and we would bring them food. And, and they called the health department in, mauled in, and check with them and test them, test them, test them, and then release them from, that, from the quarantine when the health department said it was okay. Well, just the fact, as you, uh, you mentioned earlier, just to have one person um, in some fashion, with a positive, who was positive yes. with COVID, yeah, yeah, uh, that's because you, it isn't like you're dealing with hospital nurses and you're not dealing with people that are always at the higher level of job backgrounds and educational backgrounds right, and right. sometimes emotional uh, stability that issues, sure. yeah, yeah. So um, by action, they could come in contact with someone within their own circle, and then they. Your carrier and and uh, affect other people, so that's really an impressive record. Well, there. you know, the, the, for, for months, said one of the first things I did in the morning is when I woke up, I would go onto my phone and find out what the positivity rate in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. I think Governor Baker did a great job, and DPAs did a great job with this. Except for uh, Holyoke. Holyoke, <laughs> there, there were <laughs> spots around. Yeah. That that was, and in one point in time, Malden was a high member. It was. Red it, area. it was in the what was it? The red. Red. red yeah. area, what, it was red, orange, green, or something right. like that. Yeah. And, and so I had to be cognizant all the time of what the positivity rates would be. So it was, uh, it kind of worked in our favor in those peak days for us not to have all, you know, I, I couldn't have 30 men. There's no way I could social distance to have the place full. Of course. Yeah. So we would have at any time between 15 and 20 individuals there. Uh, and, and that was appropriate for us, and we could social distance. So again, I'm not I'm not taking credit for for the fact that we had one positive. Uh, I, I, at any time, we could have had one, and we quarantined him right away. But he could have infected a bunch of guys. It was just the luck of the draw. But we were very fastidious about the way we handle it. Well, you're not giving yourself enough credit because certainly it might be luck of the draw, but at the same time. Uh, Statistically, the situations that they checked out at any level of the population, and they found out that oftentimes carelessness and indifference, and well, there were a lot of factors, and, and the people weren't aggressive enough to make sure they did the things that they told you to do. And the result was, unfortunately, in some cases, whether they were group homes or were they uh, uh, nursing homes or were they private oh, homes, they or were were schools, nursing they, homes. Yeah, it was uh, terrible. They had some sad, sad, it was sad terrible. Sad. And the staff too. I was very fortunate that none of my staff 
tested positive. Yeah. Uh, I will say, I will say, is that there was one or two individuals in one of my sober houses who tested positive and had to be quarantined. Uh, but that's in, in the continuum that I have. Uh, but in the main house where most of the guys are, there was only one. Yeah. Well, you should quit while you're ahead because you were down to one. <laughs> now, you have, you, uh, you have an, an, e- an email address. Because yes. there are people out there that sometimes are in, in a situation within their family, within their circle of friends, maybe someone that they know is struggling to, to find his way in life, or, and therefore this might be a situation that a, could apply, and a, apply to them, and if they, it doesn't apply to them, even if they made a contact through the email program that's available at EMAS that they might be redirected to uh, another source that can help them. Well, I, it's, it's uh, of course, we, we try to help people when they call, but we get a lot of calls in the course of a day. And it's pretty simple, and I'll talk right to the camera. If, if uh, you have a loved one that wants treatment, they're going to want you to make the call. Don't. Make them make the call. They call it detox, is otherwise that you'll be getting the same information from, from everybody. My website is very simple, www.easternmiddlesex.com. And just that's information to get about the program. But, it, again, it's, it's that all of us that run these programs, it's pretty simple. We want you to get medically cleared and then go through the process Lots of times the addicted individual does not want to do this, and they want you to do all the work for them. Don't do it. Is you might want to get a number of a detox, or, or, and you can get all the detox numbers by get, getting into uh, D, uh, Bureau of Substance Abuse, uh, .org or something, and in the state, and they will give you a list of all the, the, the detox programs uh, that are around, and then it's just a matter of picking up the phone and calling. Thank you very much, Tim. I appreciate it. And for any, anybody that may have missed the program today, this is on Wednesday evening at seven o'clock. The program is O two one four eight. It'll be is on Saturday night and sunny evening. And hopefully, other people that didn't hear it today will be listening in, at that time. And I appreciate you being here. And I think we've, uh, you've told as much in an hour as we possibly can, and thank you very much. Well, if I, one last thing, if I can, I want to thank my board of directors for over the years for allowing me to develop this program, and I want to thank my staff. You're fantastic. And, again, yes, as one of my counselors, Darren, says, riding and dying with me during this whole thing. I couldn't have done it without them. Thank you. Ed, so long. My pleasure, Brett.